Welcome to the GoTo Podcast. In this episode, Richard Feldman, author of Elm in Action, shares his passion about Elm in a conversation with lead developer at Humio and fellow Elm advocate, Thomas Anagrius. They discuss how learning to code in Elm can help software developers, whether or not they work with it on a daily basis. Created for developers by developers, GoTo gathers the best minds in the software community. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in Chicago, Amsterdam, and Copenhagen, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. We kicked off the conversation by asking Richard, what is Elm? What is Elm? Um, so Elm is my favorite programming language. Uh, it's it's a language uh, for building web apps, uh, building web app UIs. Um, so specifically like building UIs in the browser. Um, and generally it's used for building web applications as opposed to, for example, uh, just adding a little bit of interactivity for um, a static page. So uh, Elm compiles to JavaScript. So you can use it instead of JavaScript. Um, also it has JavaScript interop. So if you want, you can... Uh, use it in conjunction with JavaScript. Um, the most popular way that people introduce Elm to an existing code base is that they will uh, start off with an existing JavaScript code base in like React or Angular or Vue or something like that. And then they'll introduce just a little bit of Elm and then uh, see it grow and grow and grow. And then maybe eventually it sort of shifts to where their code base becomes majority Elm. And then eventually, you know, almost all or entirely all Elm. Um, that's what we did at my job um, back in 2015. And so now five years later, we have uh, somewhere around 400,000 lines of Elm code um, and very, very little, almost no remaining uh, legacy JavaScript code. Um, still a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a type checked language. Um, it's purely functional uh, and it's, it's got a lovely user experience, I think. <laughs> we then asked Richard, will Elm eventually take over the world? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Personally, I think that Elm will become popular, but not the most popular. I think uh, it's it's sort of seen a slow and steady growth, kind of like Python did. Um, so Python came out in like the, the 90s, uh, but initially it was not a very widely used language. It just kind of slowly and steadily grew, and then it became used in more and more different domains, and then eventually it became quite popular. Now it's, it's sort of among the most popular languages, but I think when it comes to building uh, applications in the browser... Uh, it's going to be, uh, it would take something really serious uh, of a change for something that's not a JavaScript dialect to like take over the world, as it were. Um, JavaScript has so much momentum. Having said that, uh, for me personally, like having spent a lot of time with Elm now, I just can't imagine myself taking a JavaScript or TypeScript or CoffeeScript job ever again. Uh, <laughs> it's really just, I mean, if I'm building a web app, I'm, I'm doing it in Elm. Um, and I think that while also thinking that uh, Elm is not going to take over the world, because as we all know, um, popularity is determined by a lot more things than just sort of technical merit. Um, so I think it's it's a great tool for me to use, and I'm very happy to teach it to other people. But at the same time, I don't think it's going to be number one in terms of popularity. That's my prediction at any rate. Well, maybe comparing it to Python is, is not... Um, the best com uh, comparison either, right? Because that's a general uh, programming language. Whereas Elm, and that's I think that's one of the really the big strengths for Elm is that it was tailored to 
doing web applications, right? That's very true. Yeah. So I, I, I think you're right. I don't think Elm is going to take over the world either. Um, I think that it's a somewhat niche uh, uh, language. It's focused. It, it's very focused and it's very uh, deliberate and it's very opinionated in uh, yeah. in how it does things. And I think um, the, the very popular things that you see out there are more general, right? Yeah, they have sort of a, a broader scope. And I think a big part in the like on the web platform is that JavaScript is the assembly language of the web, right? And as long as it will remain that, people are going to write in JavaScript or sure. things that are close to it because there's just there are so many benefits to just being able to run the code directly in the browser. Uh, you don't yeah. quite get that gnome, right? You are quite far removed, actually, when you execute uh the code the code that's being executed from what you write um yeah and i mean that's something i like about it is that uh <laughs> it, it's sort of an escape from javascript and typescript and that whole ecosystem and all the the uh complexity of it <laughs> definitely i mean what one of the things that struck me a couple of months ago is that we have at humio we have a a code base of uh you know a hundred thousand plus two hundred thousand lines of Elm code, and we have like twelve dependencies, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, yours being some of them, like uh, Elm tests, for instance, right? But uh, nice, nice, yeah. Uh, but in a, a similar JavaScript uh, application, you would have uh, hundreds of thousands, probably, of dependencies. Oh, yeah. And I'm not even, I'm not even joking there, right? That which is the yeah, yeah. part of it. And I, I, I mean, personally, um, you know, when things are, go wrong or, or when, when I start to hack uh, in, in my code, it's usually because I, hack, I need to hack around something that comes from a dependency, um, <laughs> right? So when, when it's your own code, you don't really need to do that. And sure, it's, it's a little bit more effort, but in the long run, it's worth it, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I would take that on a case by case basis. I mean, certainly some some uh, packages that I get, you know, are, are really valuable. But yeah, I, definitely there's a cultural difference where in Elm, I think uh, you don't get this micro package thing that you see in the npm ecosystem where people write, you know, leftpad being the most famous example of that, um, where you have this like it's like a one liner. <laughs> Someone made a package out of that. It doesn't really happen in Elm, or at least not from what I've seen. Um, and yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, I would, if it's just a one-liner, I'd kind of rather write it myself and not have this ballooning explosion of dependencies. I think we, I don't know if we've quite crossed it yet, but we're very close to 400,000 lines of Elm code at work. Um, and we still have under a hundred total dependencies, like direct dependencies, as well as their dependencies. Like if you add up all the dependencies we download on a, on a clean build, it's less than a hundred. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's normal for Elm. It's, it's, you don't really see that same explosion of dependencies um and which is kind of funny because considering you've got elm's dead code elimination that's like so much better than what's possible in javascript uh you would think the downside of of getting more packages would be less like you don't because you don't pay for it in terms of you know, compiled asset size um and yet like we have we have that great benefit uh as well as <laughs> not having to uh, uh deal with the like mental complexity of, of having so many dependencies to keep up with. I think it's also, it, it might also be one of the things that's a little bit scary about Elm um, hmm. because 
for new people like i i often encounter encounter people when um when they're just starting out Nelm. they say what like why is everything so hard <laughs> and of course <laughs> i don't i don't think that they're so hard if something's new then you know of course it's it's unfamiliar it's by definition harder than what you're doing yeah before. but i think that there's more than that though right there there uh, elm is a very as i said before opinionated um mm-hmm. in how it does things and it's very restrictive you can't just go out and touch the dom uh, willy-nilly right? True. And uh, like you're used to in, in JavaScript. So so getting these um, uh, or hitting these roadblocks can, I, I think, is a, a source of frustration for people because you don't want to understand it, right? Uh, as sure. you said. One of the motivations for writing the book is uh, giving people, like beginners in particular, um, a, a way to understand how to not just like learn the syntax of the language and the concepts behind it, but actually like learn how to build things with it. Because like you said, I mean, it is different from, you know, what you're used to if you're coming from a JavaScript background and hopefully uh, the book has made it easier. (laughs) Yeah. So, so in the book, you take people from like learning the basic syntax, right? Because it is not a a C family uh, language, right? So, so the syntax is quite, uh, some would say uh, exotic, some would say uh, arcane <laughs> to, uh, to what people are used to, right? Uh, and, and that can definitely be a factor as well. It's such a simple language at the same time, right? It is, yeah. I mean, I, I would say the syntax is closer to Python than JavaScript, but it's also not quite the same as Python either. I mean, in the sense that you have uh, you know fewer parentheses, for example, uh, than you do in JavaScript. <laughs> or maybe even Ruby, actually. But there are definitely differences. Yeah, but syntax really is, uh, in my experience, I mean, I've, I've taught Elm workshops as well as um, like online courses for front-end masters and, and the book. Uh, and it seems to me, based on my workshop teaching experience, that syntax is, is actually the quickest thing that people get used sure, to. Sure, yeah, exactly. It, it's more the way of interacting. That's what I meant, right? That you, you just yeah, don't yeah. go out and touch the DOM. You do things in a very strict right. manner, in a, in a very strict order. And, and I think before React uh got really popular um like the virtual dom thing was uh was a very unusual thing i think now people are more familiar with that and maybe even that's you know that's the most common thing i would say uh that that people are used to but yeah like you said the difference is that um that's all you've got right that's that's the only way to do things there is no like alternative fallback you know oh let me just reach out and mutate this one thing i mean yes you can do that with javascript interop but um that's not till what chapter five i want to say <laughs> in the book like halfway through um but yeah i mean that that's it's that's considered very normal in javascript to be able to do that whenever you want and in elm that's a very advanced you know like you need to learn several different techniques before you could do something like that and it's of course uh strongly discouraged <laughs> it's it's not like the language doesn't want you to do that the language really wants you to you know uh, buy into the like virtual DOM concept and use that as as your exclusive way of rendering things. But if you do, you get all sorts of benefits. So it's like restrictive, but there's a there's a lot of benefits that come from those restrictions. They're not sort of arbitrary restrictions. They're restrictions right, of a right. very very yeah. good purpose. It's about getting people to appreciate what those benefits give you, right? And, totally, uh, which yeah. is hard to see when you're just starting out. At my company, you know, we we're a lot of developers mm-hmm. with on a big code base. And it just, I'm never afraid of breaking the code base uh, because I trust in compiler, I trust, right? Uh, If it compiles, it works. And that's something that 
uh, a feeling that you don't a security sense of security you don't really see even in in other strongly typed languages uh, um, because they they allow you to do like escape that safety right and Elm right, really right. does not. People ask me like, well, you know, what's the difference between Elm and TypeScript? Is Elm just like uh, you know a, a typed language? Well, TypeScript's got types. You know, what's the difference? And one of the easiest differences to point to, and, and maybe the biggest one, is any. Like in TypeScript, you have any, which is this escape hatch that means that any possible types could be a lie. <laughs> uh, and you actually can't, it's not achievable to have the same level of trust in TypeScript as you do in Elm. And that sounds like kind of an abstract thing, but like you said, I mean, the real benefit there is this feeling of like invincibility of like, I can make whatever change I want and I'm not, it, like once I get it to compile again, it's, it's probably going to work again. And I've gotten so spoiled by that. I like, like you said. I mean, we have this huge code base, and we just make big changes to it whenever we want to. Like, if if we think that the code's going to be better if we reorganize it in a particular way, we just do it, and then we follow the compilers until it works again. And usually, I mean, uh, we don't even need to change tests unless you know there there are also corresponding type errors in the tests. But it's not like we we need to. Um, like lean on handwritten tests to, to give us that same confidence. Like we do have tests too, but, uh, but the compiler is like 90% of, of what's getting us back there. And we didn't even have to write that code. It's just, you know, the compiler just did it for us just because we were using Elm. Like the, the amount of like code cleanup that we can do and in, uh, in like such a faster speed has really been for me, just, just something that I, I can't imagine giving up again. Um, like the ability to just say like, I want to clean my code up in this way. I'll just do it and it'll be fine. Um, whereas I, I've, in other, even in other typed languages I've used, um, in a lot of cases I'm like, Ooh, well, if I change it, is it going to work again afterwards? Am I going to cause a bunch of regressions? I just never have that fear in L. Especially when it's someone else's code, right? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there, we have, you know, we're coming up on a hundred employees at the company, um, at, at no right Inc. Uh, where I work and, and like, you know, that, that's not a huge number of people. I mean, you know, there's obviously companies with thousands and thousands of employees. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, uh, you know, necessarily like if any of my coworkers uh, are even aware of the code that I'm writing and I may not be aware of the code that they're writing. There's like parts of the code base that I haven't even seen before. That's a, it's a good point. It's one of the things that like the, the, the in, in functional languages, um, w- one of the key differences, I think, is that what you see is what you get. What what you're looking at right now is what's going to happen, right? It's it, you shouldn't be afraid of changing something in the um, uh, invoicing part of the code, and it all of a sudden breaks uh, the carousel on the front page, right? Because because of side effects, because there are none um, when everything is a pure function, right? And that. That is uh, such a game changer for large code bases, I think. Absolutely. I mean, I, I usually don't mention that one when people ask about the difference between Elm and TypeScript because it's it's a little bit harder to explain. But um, yeah, I've really felt that one when I uh, have com- been comparing Elm and Rust. So Rust, uh, I, I've been spending time with as well. Um, and I like it a lot. Uh, there's there's a lot of great things about Rust. Um, but the the refactoring ability is just not on the same level as what I get in Elm. And it's, like you said, it's because of side effects and, and mutation. Like Rust even has a first-class concept of mutation tracking, and they don't have any, which TypeScript does. Um, and it was a typed language from day one, so like the whole ecosystem is, you know, is typed. Um, 
so in those ways, I would say Rust's type system is a lot more reliable to me than, than TypeScript's. But even with that, I've still had bugs where I took some Rust code and I just habitually, because I can do this in Elm without any concern, I'll just rearrange the order in which things are happening. I'm like, oh, actually, I think it makes more sense to like call this and then call this and then call this. Um, or, or I did some other refactor that resulted in code being in different places and it didn't work anymore afterwards. It, w- it was broken. And I was like, why? Why? How could this have broken? Because in Elm, yeah, like you said, I mean, when you have the guarantee that functions don't have side effects, you really can just, just rearrange them however you want to make the code nicer and 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 really have the the, the full expectation that it's going to work again afterwards. Um, but even in Rust, that has not been true for me. I, I've definitely broken stuff just by reordering it. Um, whereas in Elm, I'm like, yeah, just reorder it. It's fine. If it compiles again, it's going to work. And and it almost always does to, to almost a a shocking degree. You can still code the wrong thing, right? You can still code the wrong thing, but course, it's going to yeah. work. <laughs> it's not 100%. There's, there's, it's not possible to guarantee that if it compiles, it just works. Um, but it is just r- ridiculous how often it is. I mean, it's it's certainly most of the time. And it's like, <laughs> I don't know what exact percentage, but it feels like it's like in the like 80% plus range, you know, that like I, when it compiles, like to the point where, if it compiles, I just expect it to work. And if it doesn't work, I'm very surprised. I'm like, what happened? How did this compile and then not work? <laughs> Which is a hard feeling to convey because it sounds so ridiculous at face value. I mean, if you, if you spend a lot of time programming in other languages, I mean, this, that, that's not normal. One of the interesting things is that for, for our application, um, whenever we have bugs, it's usually due to CSS because we don't use Elm CSS. Right? And yeah. um, maybe you can talk a little bit about what that is. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, so uh, Elm CSS is uh, a library that I made. Um, we use it at work. Uh, although, honestly, I, I, I feel like every time I bring up Elm CSS, I need to make a plug for Elm UI, which I kind of wish we were using at work, except that we just have so much legacy CSS, it's it would be a, a really good project it. to convert <laughs> to it. Um, but Elm UI is one of the most beloved and like most popular Elm packages. Um, so Elm UI is, uh, it was made by Matt Griffith and uh, basically it's a CSS alternative where basically it's a way to do layout in the browser without even knowing CSS. Like you don't have to do any, no CSS concepts, not no Flexbox, no grid, no float, no any of that. It's just a complete ground up scratch rewrite of like a layout system uh, that works in the browser. And the way that it works is, of course, that it behind the scenes compiles to CSS in the same way that Elm compiles to JavaScript. Um, but the point is it has a completely unrelated set of primitives. And so uh, some of the funny things are like, I, I saw actually on, on Elm Discourse, I think it was yesterday, um, somebody posted like, hey, uh, I'm, I'm entering the job market. And they, one of the concerns that they listed was, uh, I, I got into front-end web development and I'm learning Elm, uh, and I know Elm UI, but I don't really know CSS, and I'm kind of concerned that that's that's gonna you know be like make it difficult for me to get a, a front end job because most places you know do use CSS. Um, but I love that implication. It's just like yeah, like if you know Elm UI, it's like CSS is a lot harder <laughs> because we had a big um, React code base before we started using Elm. Uh, we um, we have legacy CSS, and so uh, we sort of incrementally moved that over to Elm CSS. So Elm CSS is, um, I guess it's it's similar to, uh, it was originally um, styled components, I think was the, the one in uh, React, uh, but I think there's new names for it now. And I think there's one that's more uh, closely resembles the Elm CSS UI. Um, 
or uh, API, but I forget what it's called. I want to say it's Emotion, but I might be misremembering that. I've been like kind of out of the JS world for so long. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the names of things anymore. Um, but the basic idea is that uh, it gives you a way to do um, type checked CSS uh, in your in your front end code. Uh, and, and also you don't need to have a separate style sheet. So uh, I can basically just add a, a, an attribute to any of my HTML values, uh, any of my elements that, are, that just says CSS. And then the CSS attribute takes a list of typed CSS properties. So for example, um, if I want my button to have a one pixel border, I can just say CSS and then uh, square bracket because you give it a list of, of all the attributes that you want. Um, and I just say like, you know, border one pixel solid, blah, blah, blah. Um, and if I mess that up, like if I if I mistype something uh, in there, um, then I'll I'll get an error at compile time, um, and then it behind the scenes will automatically generate a class, and then uh, it's like a hash of the um, of all the styles in there, and then reference that, and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, uh, it it makes things a, a lot uh, easier, but it is at the end of the day still fundamentally CSS. So. Uh, it's sort of a, a way to make CSS nicer. We have, I, I counted at some point, it's like 600 and some odd different like typed CSS properties in there. Um, so it's not like the entire 100% of the CSS spec, but it's, you know, it's a lot. <laughs> Whenever I see people complain about TypeScript compile times, I'm like, what's that? <laughs> what's what's a long compile time? Yeah, it's, because... fun, it's funny you said that because I, one of the reasons, so we went for, you know, having everything in Gnome uh, is, is quite... Um, a benefit, right? Having yeah. like thinking about thinking about your application as not just the behavior, but also the way it looks, because you can't really separate the two, right? Um, yeah. In an, a web application, but the at the time, which is now several years ago, uh, the compile times were so excruciatingly long. Oh yeah. Uh, that it just um, it, it wasn't feasible to you know you wanted to see how does this look when it's uh, has a rounded corner and you have to wait the uh, eighty seconds or something like that when you get to a certain size right um, well, that's not, it's not like that today right it's like a second <laughs> so yeah yeah like twenty seventeen Elm compile times were not great <laughs> I think that was like everyone's favorite release uh <laughs> of like the people who are using elm today but who are also using it in like 2017 like the one that just made the compiler just ridiculously fast yeah i mean yeah that was a total game changer we, we went from like 2.8 sec uh, minutes to four seconds for, uh, for yeah <laughs> <laughs> right and that's like that's like a a, a, a scratch build right like yeah, the, the entire scratch, code base yeah. in four seconds yeah because like incremental compile times are usually sub-second. That was a nice release. Getting back to the book, the amount of code that um, you end up writing in the book, even though it is one application, like starting in, so chapters two through eight are all about uh, building one application. So like chapter one is just basic syntax, but then uh, throughout the rest of the book, it's all about building an application uh, from start, start to finish. And then each chapter you like, at the beginning you get sort of feature requests you know, from your manager. Um, and then you implement that, that feature request over the course of the chapter. And then uh, in the course of implementing that feature, you learn about the concepts necessary to do that. Um, and, uh, and the entire time, I think, uh, unless you have, I guess I haven't tried it on like a Chromebook, um, but I would expect that all compile times like throughout the entire book would be less than a second. Um, I'd be surprised if if someone's machine took more than a second to compile something. It's uh, it's one thing that that um, struck me 
uh, about the book is that it is really a journey from from absolute novice to being able to write a fully fledged uh, single page application, right? Where you even cover things like web component. Like what you said before is that uh, using JavaScript and so on is a big no no in Elm, or at, at least you're discouraged from doing it. It's discouraged, yeah. Why would you do it anyway? <laughs> And how does that work with Web Component? Yeah, I mean, uh, so so Elm has JavaScript interop, um, but it's it's generally speaking, it's a fallback. It's not the it's not intended to be something that you use all the time. It's just like you know, if there's something that you need, like there's a particular, um, like there's one very specific JavaScript library, and there's no Elm equivalent library of that thing, then you know, if the alternative is like, well, we'd have to write this whole thing from scratch in Elm, um, or maybe it's something where Elm doesn't have first class support for that. Um, like WebRTC or something like that, um, then yeah, you you know you do JavaScript interop for that. But the idea is that um, you know I, I think most people want to have a ratio of like ninety nine point nine percent Elm to like 0.1 percent JavaScript in their code base or, or TypeScript or whatever it is. Um, it's not like you have like oh it's you know seventy thirty Elm JavaScript. It's like no no no. <laughs> it's very much like that for us as well. Um, the things that we use JavaScript interrupt for is uh, so we, we're. Uh, log aggregation management platform, right? Where we right. visualize uh, people's logs. So we have like live charts and uh, Elm didn't have a, like a fully feature, rich featured uh, charting library. So what we could do then is use a web component and just plot things in there and just wrap this little um, web component as like a, a, a micro application running inside of right. Elm uh, and, and talk to that through a type safe API which is just fits in perfectly with Elm, uh, right? Or as close the, as close as you can get to it uh, without right. breaking the model. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the analogy I like to use is that uh, talking to JavaScript is like talking to a server in the sense that you're sending immutable data, just sending messages. Yeah, it's you know, very much that feeling. Yeah, um, and that's why, so actually the chapters are titled that way. So I think it's um, chapter four is called talking to servers and then chapter five is talking to JavaScript. And the reason the titles, chapter titles are that way is because they're so similar. <laughs> so you learn the concepts of like, here's how to talk to a server. And then the next chapter, it's like, okay, now we're going to do a very similar thing, except instead we're talking to JavaScript back and forth. Um, I guess that's that's how it is with ports. Um, but then with web components, I, I, I've um, talked to people in like, uh, like I know people on like the React core team and the Vue core team, Angular and um, Ember. Uh, and when I've talked to them about um, web components, it seems like... Uh, Elm users might be the biggest customers of web components or, or specifically custom elements um, and specifically just for JavaScript interop because they're so convenient for that. Because uh, in that case, um, if you're if you're rendering something and you want to be like, oh, I want to take this um, JavaScript widget of some sort, like I have a, I don't know, um, like an embedded calendar or something that I really like or because um, like there's, there's Elm visualization libraries. Um, oh, there's a lot more, a lot more robust now than they were uh, <laughs> in 2017, but um, uh, and then there's also like, you know, calendar date picker type things. Um, uh, but let's say there is some JavaScript thing that you really want. Oh, Google maps. That's a good example. Um, there definitely is not a, you know, Elm. I, I can't imagine anyone ever <laughs> going to all the trouble of like doing an embedded Google maps in pure Elm. That'd be very impressive. Um, and actually I think there was an Elm Europe talk a couple years ago about doing a, like a pan and zoom type map, but it's not like the full featured, you know, map thing. But if you wanted to embed one of those, yeah, I mean, the way that I would do that is with a custom element. Um, and yeah, the, the, it's really convenient for that. And yeah, the book goes into how to do that. Um, I, I, I used, uh, 
both a custom element and also uh, ports in the in the JavaScript interrupt chapter because I think they're both useful techniques to use. Like you use them for different things. Like custom elements are more for visual things, whereas if you need to just talk to a JavaScript library, it's going to do some calculations or whatever, um, or or some sort of uh, like a common thing that people will do is um, if they've got like an analytics provider, uh, like Rollbar or Bugsnag or um, something like that, uh, that provider will provide some JavaScript library that just automatically does all the correct talking to their server thing. Then um, people will just talk to that out of a JavaScript port rather than writing an Elm specific wrapper. Like there's a couple of um, wrappers, like Elm, uh, Elm, like entirely Elm wrappers so for like Bugsnag and Rollbar. Um, but I don't know about, uh, like, yeah, there's a lot of services out there, so they probably don't all have uh, pure Elm implementations. One of um, one of the th- biggest takeaways, I think, that I have from using, like, so if I if I were to never touch Elm again, and um, I, I, th- I still think I would have, I, I still think I've benefited from being an Elm developer because the, the focus or the, the way that I write Elm is I start by modeling things, right? Really modeling the problem. And I don't think that I've ever done that in any other um, language or platform. And I think, I wonder whether that's because of necessity or because why that is, right? That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Just like getting getting the data model right. Like getting, getting the data, yeah. And in Elm, it is so beneficial to... Um, you know, the, the, the famous phrase, make illegal state unrepresentable. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's not just for Elm, right? It's something that go into Java and you can do exactly the same thing and get exactly the same benefits. Uh, But you just don't feel the pain as much um, if you don't do it. And I think that's because you, like in Elm, you have to handle every contingency. Right. If, if if your model allows you to both have um, uh, a field says you got a server error and another where it says here's the successful data, right? Those two are incompatible. Right. You got to remember to handle the failure possibility. Yeah. The compiler tells you about edge cases. It's not like you you find out about them, you know, way after the fact after it's like a bug report. It's like you find out about it when the compiler tells you you didn't cover this case. <laughs> and then. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, I also don't, uh, I, I would say Rust is maybe the the only other language where I've done that because Rust and Elm have, have similar like type system capabilities um, in terms of like some types and product types. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely um, changed the way that I've thought about programming, like for the better. I, I definitely um, think that the way that I write Elm code is just more robust and and better like the language sort of guided me to do that i don't i don't think that was like a a thing that was just like a you know cultural phenomenon that people just decided to do i think it's like the the experience of using the language i think it just makes me move in that direction and it's a good direction thanks for listening to this episode of the goto podcast head over to gotopia.tech for lots more content from the brightest minds in software development Thank you.